This is one of these stories in the Old Testament that if you've ever read through the Bible and you come to this story, you read the story, and then once you finish reading the story, you step back and you say, say what? I mean, what in the world does this mean? It almost seems like this is one of the chapters in the Old Testament in the period of Judges which it's really hard on the surface to do a lot with. Other than just say, it was a rough time and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. But I believe in this text, in this passage of Scripture from the Old Testament, we're going to see some amazing truths from God's Word on ways to understand today what many people call the power grab. Have you ever heard that referenced in history, on the news, in the newspapers? The power grab. Someone who would come and say, I may not be known now, but people will know who I am. I will make a name for myself under the sun and I will be known. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care how far I have to go. I don't care what sins I have to commit. I will get power. People will know who I am. Not only that, I will do whatever I can do so that at the end of the day, I will have money. I am bound and determined to be a success in my life. And I'm going to tell you this morning, the Word of God will help us to see the scourge and the curse of what we call self-promotion. You and I, whether we realize it or not, are pressured by a culture that tells us in order for things to ever go right in your life, you have to look out for number one. And who is that number one? You just look in the mirror. And whoever is there, and obviously if you're looking at the mirror, you don't have somebody creepy looking over your shoulder. You are number one, and you've got to go out there and kick all you can and take all you can and learn all you can so at the end of the day, you'll be somebody. Well, the Bible tells us that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And that it doesn't matter if no one knows your name. It doesn't matter if you live like Matt Foley, old school Saturday Night Live, in a van down by the river. It doesn't matter if you have a degree or don't have a degree. The thing that matters in the very end is that all I have is Jesus. And our driving thought for this message is that insecurity will cripple us but yet confidence in Christ will preserve us. This is the story of Abimelech. And if you were here with us last week, we looked at a story that some of us may be familiar with. The story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through chapter 8. And we begin this morning in Judges chapter 9, although we'll look back at a few verses in chapter 8, about Gideon's son named Abimelech. And in chapter 8, verse 22, we're going to see the beginning of the contrast between a godly father and a wicked son. Verse 22 in chapter 8 of Judges 
The Bible says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Help me out, church. The Lord will rule over you. What an amazing picture, guys. If you had driven out with God's power and with God's help, the entire invading army of the Midianites, who not only took everything you had, but they took everything that you could produce to have anything to have. Took all the animals, all the crops. It would be like an invading force coming into Virginia and taking not only our animals, not only our food, but those of you who work with your hands, all of your power tools. All of them. You've got like a stick and a corn cob and a rock to work with. Then they come in, for those of you that, that, that you do more desk job work, they take away all of your computers. In other words, they stripped Israel of everything to the point that Gideon, Abimelech's dad, was down under the ground in a wine press trying just to beat out some wheat so that they could have something to eat. And the angel comes and says, There you are, you mighty man of valor. And then Gideon, God used him to bring that great victory. And after the victory, the people said, we want you to be our boss and be our king. But do you notice the power that he gave away? I just want to stick this sticky note of theological truth that when you are secure in Jesus Christ, when you are secure in who He has made you to be and what He has called you to be, your life is not characterized by trying to grab at attention and trying to accumulate recognition, but your life is characterized by being able to give power away. Being able to say, it's not me. I have a great team that I work with. It's not me. It's that God has given me the strength. It's not me. It's this great church that I serve with. It's not me. It's my Sunday school class that's there for me. It's not me. It's my godly wife who prays for me. It's not me. It's my godly husband who tells me he's there with me through thick and thin. It's not me. It's a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a godly mentor that taught me about Jesus when I was very small. And the fruits that you praise today are simply a result of something that was not mine. You see, it's practice for when we are with Jesus and when we realize that He has all power and He's standing there before us, the risen King, having brought all of history to a conclusion, an absolute awesome climax to where evil is forever destroyed and we're there in His presence and we will cast all of our crowns at the feet of Jesus and we will bow the knee and say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Because then, then, we'll realize that He has all power. So for you today, the fact that Jesus Christ has set you free, if you've been saved, it's a practice of giving away power. Amen? Because we serve the one who's able to do all things for us. But unfortunately, Gideon's life was not just characterized by wise decisions. In verses um, 25 through 28 there of chapter 8, he made a dumb decision... An unwise decision by a wise man. He made what was called an ephod, which was a garment that the priest would wear. And God had very clearly given instruction 
and said that that is only for the priest to wear where I have designated worship should take place. Gideon wanted to make his own, and the Bible says that it became a snare in verse 27 to Gideon and his family. I want to caution all of us, including myself, that whenever we are enamored with something, we're interested in something that God has done, let's go ahead and go with what God has done and not try to recreate something ourselves. In the Old Testament, the theme comes over and over again where people make God into an image of their own. And not only that, but there in verse number 30, guys, now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, if you're taking notes, God told the nation of Israel very clearly, do not multiply wives unto yourself. Now, I just, we don't know how many, but guys, he fathered 70 sons. 70. That's more than a football team. Seventy sons, multiple wives. It was a violation of God's Word. And one of his wives, well, actually she was not a wife there in verse there's 31. She was from an area called Shechem, and she was a concubine, or a, a girlfriend, or a friend with benefits. She bore a son named Abimelech. And Abimelech, growing up in this fractured type of family was willing to sell people out for power. There in verse 1, chapter 9, Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam or Gideon rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember that I am bone of your bone, that I'm your bone and your flesh. Verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-Bereth, which was the temple for a pagan idol, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And here's where it gets very sketchy. Verse 5, And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Abimelech's power grab was not from God. What we see in the book of Judges is that God raised different judges up. Amen? You have Deborah, who suggested to Barak, said, I am with you, the Lord is with you. Isn't it time that you obey? We see God raising up Gideon, and and next week, Samson. I can't wait. It's going to be such a fun study. Samson. Y'all ready for that? Okay, you can bring your cut-off t-shirt, you know, and be like doing weights down the aisle. Maybe we'll have the ushers do that. Just kidding. And it, it's going to be a great study. But we see God raising up people. But notice what Abimelech did. He raised himself up. And just a note that we're going to tag on the end of this message in just a few minutes is that whenever we try to advance ourselves in opposition of God's Word, we can only advance ourselves as far as we can raise our arms. If we want to exalt ourselves, there's only a certain point that we have the strength to climb to, right? Right? 
But if we submit ourselves to God, there is no measure, there is no limit to where God can raise us to to be an influence in this world. But Abimelech said, I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to wait around. Not only am I not going to wait, I'm going to be insidious like Satan and try to start what would be a family feud, to put it mildly. Now, can you imagine that scene? His brothers, all but one, murdered on one stone. He was given blood money from a pagan temple to go out and hire thugs. If you've seen gangland, this is the Old Testament equivalent. The Bible says... Worthless and reckless fellows. The King James Version says light fellows, meaning that they had no depth of spirit. People who would do anything for a buck. Do you know anybody like that? They're around until somebody can pay them a little bit more to do something even more sketchy and even more wrong. He had no mercy. Remember Joseph and his brothers said, well, we want to kill Joseph. And then we want to... Had them out of our lives, but then, then one of the brothers came in and they said, well, well, let's just, let, let's show mercy. Let's at least sell him to give him a chance to live. This is what sin does. Sin always goes down, 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 down. And in the decline of a society, morals will continue to get worse until it hits rock bottom and the people cry out for God. Here is an example. If you want to take a note, James chapter 2, verse 10. The Bible says, For judgment is without mercy to him who has shown no mercy. But this is the best part of the verse. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that a good truth? That if you say, Lord, you've given me mercy. I'm going to give mercy to others. He'll give you even more mercy. But he says, for those who have shown no mercy, there is no mercy. He built his, quote, kingdom on the blood of his own family. So we see some scenes in Abimelech's life. Number one would be that he was willing to sell out people for power. I want to let you know that power sometimes can be, let's just say this, power all the time can be seductive. Power says if you have more of me, you can do more of what you want. If you just have more of me, you can get more of what you desire. But at the end of the day, What matters is relationships. Amen? I am task-driven. I love to do things. I love to be on a team to accomplish tasks. Some of you, you're like, task-driven, my eye. I love to just hang out. It doesn't matter. I mean, let the stuff burn on the stove. We can go to McDonald's or cookout. I just want to have a good time. And then some of you, you're like, Jeff, you've only gotten to one point in the note so far. What do I do? I need to fill out the rest of my bulletin. We have a key there on the bottom of that. For those of you that are really OCD in your note taking, you can fill it all out in five seconds and then fill in the notes as you go. Amen? Amen. Some of you are like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I never noticed that right there. All right, so, so we're good. We're all on the same page here. He was willing to sell out people for power. And not only that, but Abimelech demonstrates a willingness to align himself and connect with people who lacked principle. To the point that they would take the lives of innocent men. And then this young brother, we don't know how old he was, but he escapes there in verse number 7. And from verse number 7 through verse 21, he escapes and he stands on the top of Mount Gerizim. And he gives this parable... And the parable is such that he says there is an olive tree 
And the trees representing the people say, come reign over us. And the olive tree said, essentially, that I, I have too much. And then the fig tree in verse 11. Shall I leave my sweetness and go hold sway over the trees? In verse 12, the vine. You come reign over us. And the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers both God and men and go hold sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble or the thorn bush, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Say, Jeff, what in the world is this? What does it mean? It means that all of the people who should have been in charge were simply too busy. The olive tree. I have too much elegance. The fig tree. I have too much sweetness. The vine. I have too much joy. Let me just make a... I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in the application, but sometimes Christians complain about the nature of the political world in which we live in. And how few Christians are even involved to be salt in life in the political realm? Very few. There's a lot of people who say that they love Jesus, but they won't vote. I think that it would be great for some of you to pray about running for office. Y'all okay? We've got two godly people here in this church that hold political office in Franklin County. Often we we, we do this. We're like the olive plant and, 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 and the, the fig tree and the vine saying, well, I mean, that would be annoying. That, that, would, that would take a lot of my life. But here's the thing. We've got one life to live. Why don't you be as much as you can be in every area of life? And for some of you, you're the one that needs to be in charge. You are. And that's what this, this goes back. Ancient, ancient stuff. Even Socrates said that it's not the one who wants to rule for rulership's sake, but it's the one who desires to rule only because it's necessary. Remember George Washington? After the British were defeated, there were men all over Europe who were thinking George Washington, with the power that he has, could be a king over a whole continent. But George Washington could have very easily done that. Or at least assumed dictatorial powers for himself. I mean, he's George Washington, the father of our country. The hero of the French and Indian War. The one who defeated the number one military in the world at that time. But yet George Washington limited himself and gave it away. And in doing that gave the ability for the country to form and being a freedom-giving and freedom-loving country of what we enjoy today. So why don't you dream big? Y'all okay? Some of you are like, well, I, I, I thought Christians weren't supposed to run in politics. I've heard it's dirty business. The same people that tell you that are the same people that tell you never talk about religion. And I just want to be very honest, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because Satan doesn't necessarily need you out there tattooing a swastika on your forehead, wearing a pentagram necklace, saying, Hail Satan! He just needs you to shut up about Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is shut up about Jesus, and the people that are in your life, if someone else doesn't shut up about Him, they'll just nicely live their jobs, stay out of trouble, Stay on the good side of the law, have their families, and nicely and safely drift into hell for all eternity. That's all he needs you to do. And all he needs you to do is be silent. He was willingness to align with people without principle. 
But here's the truth from God's Word that a house is only as firm as its foundation and the end is determined by its means. Some people will tell us that the end justifies the means. Which means that if you have a good end, it doesn't matter what you have to do that's wrong or who you have to hurt in order to produce something. But what many people who are utilitarians in their philosophy and their ethics fail to understand is that the means that you use to produce the end actually give the end its character. For example, if the government throws out entirely the Bill of Rights in order to make us, quote-unquote, safer, that in one sense, even if that were possible, and it's really not, they would be setting up an end that would lead to despotism and a dictatorship. Y'all okay? The end never justifies the means, but the means determine the end. So here's what happens in verse 22. This is where the story shifts. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. You say, oh my goodness, I thought God was a good God, and the Bible just said that He sent an evil spirit. Why? Look at verse 24. So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Now, if you're taking notes, go back to chapter 8 and verse 32. Um, Abimelech's kingdom lasted three years before the beginning of the end started, and Gideon lived to a ripe old age. You say, Jeff, are you saying... That dedication and service to God is a guarantee of living to an old age? Absolutely not. But there are certain things that you and I can do in our lives that will bring more suffering than needs be, right? That's the book of Proverbs that will bring us to an end that God does not desire for us to have to deal with. If you're taking notes, write this down. God is sovereign enough to give us the effect of our desires. This is basically what it is. God's sovereignty in saying, okay, Abimelech, you used people, you were willing to sacrifice people for power and align yourself with people who have no principle. I'm going to give you the spirit that's been there all along. The spirit of mutually assured destruction. Not the old Soviet strategy that we had. We got as many nukes as you. You launch a nuke, we launch two nukes. You launch four nukes, we launch... It's not that, but in... The context of Abimelech's life, the very house that he built was built upon the blood of innocent men. And God sends what is righteous judgment to bring an end to that house. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 32. Joab, who had murdered Abner, the Bible says, so, that the, so shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and the head of his descendants forever. And Esther chapter 9, verse 25, Haman, who tried to formulate and set up what we could call the first great holocaust in Persia, which controlled most of the known ancient Near Eastern world at that time. He said, get all the Jews together, tell everybody in every province and every town and every village to gather on this day, to gather up the Jews and to kill them. And the Bible says that the blood came back upon the head of the one who had planned it. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and if someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on him who rolls it. Think of Germany and the USSR invading Poland, 1939. 
I've been reading a book in my spare time, which is not that much, and it's Soviet propaganda of World War II from a communistic Russian perspective. And even through, I mean, guys, it is so, I mean, it, may, it makes MSNBC and a lot of things that we see on cable television look unbiased. I mean, it is really a work of political, I guess we could say, intrigue. And even in that book, it admits that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, this dividing Poland, killing innocent people, taking things, violating God's Word, obviously, led to the beginning of the end. Now, let's just step back for just a moment and say, whatever we build our lives upon, that will, if God is not gracious to come in and bring us to our knees, that will characterize our life. And the question I would ask you at this point in this narrative is what is your life built upon at this point? So it all begins to fall apart. In verse 25, there begins to be a civil war. It begins to be guerrilla warfare, Old Testament style, to where Abimelech and Shechem are at war. Then there's another man who comes into Shechem. There in verse 26, he was trying to get Shechem to betray Abimelech even further. So then the leader of the town in verse 30, Zebul, decides to pit Gaul and Abimelech against each other. So then in verse 34 through verse 41, there is this civil war between the two and they begin to kill each other. And then Abimelech wins the fight and then he comes into Shechem, the place that originally gave him the blood money to build his kingdom, the people that were originally aligned with him, and he goes to war with Shechem. He kills the people there in verse 45. He fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city, killed the people that were in it. He raised or leveled the city and sowed it with salt. And then in verse 48 or 46, the survivors there, the few survivors, go into this tower. And guess what happens? The survivors, his confederates, are in this tower and he tells everyone, get a, get a branch, put it around the tower and burn it down. And in verse number 49, over 1,000 men and women die. But here's, I think, something very wise for us to note in regards to foreign policy and human nature. In verse 50, he goes to war with a town called Thebes, a town that had never done him any harm. Do you realize that when someone is bent upon glory and destruction and conquest, if you give in to the monster, it's not going to be satisfied. Do we realize that? You can't satisfy someone whose quest is to conquer. It's like feeding a fire. And then he camps against this place called Thebes. These people go into their tower and he tries to do the same thing. And burn it down. But in verse 53, a certain woman, ladies, here's your Xena warrior princess moment. She drops an upper millstone and it crushes his skull. He was alive enough to the point in verse 54 to tell one of the young men with him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And verse 55, And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. 
Jeff, what in the world does this mean? I believe there are three action points that we can take away to see the gospel of Jesus in this story. Number one is for you and I to look to Christ when we are tempted to be envious of the temporary successes of evil people. Can you imagine what Jotham must have seen? All of his brothers killed, and he saw his one brother who committed the murder, rising to power, and those three years everything seemed to be going well. I don't know if you've ever been to that point in your life to where you look at someone else and you covet who they are and what they have. We're not going to ask for a show of hands. Y'all glad about that? But you just look at that person and you say, I wish I could be like them. I wish that I could have what they have. I wish I could know what they know. But it seems that they're, everything's going fine for them. But yet in Psalm chapter 73, it's an amazing passage from the Bible. If you want to check it out later, the gist of it is that the psalmist said, my steps had almost stumbled. God, I'm trying to serve You. I'm trying to follow You. But it looks like those who care nothing for You are prospering. It seems that me and my service, I just have problems one after another. But it seems like the wicked have no problems. It seems like they do well financially. It seems like their health is good. But as for me, my health is bad and my finances are few. God, how am I to understand this? Have you ever thought that before? Why do things go so bad for me when I'm serving Jesus and so rough for the people that I know that love God and seems to be clear sailing for those who don't give a rip? And the psalm turns and it says, Then I went into the house of the Lord and I understood their end. you realize that what may look like success now, if God does not break through the hardness of the heart, it will lead to ultimate destruction? And do you realize that in your life what you see sometimes is failure and what you see as something that's not important at all will lead to ultimate victory? You see, some of us, we've got it all turned around. We look at the world and we say that's success. But the Bible tells us to look to Christ for what success actually is. We may have some olive trees, some fig trees, some grapevines in here. You say, Jeff, by God's grace, things seem to be going well in my life. My family's going well. My job is going well. But I just, I, it's going so well, Jeff, that I don't have the time to serve Jesus like I really want to. I don't have the time to invest in church or to share the gospel with my friends on the side. If that's true for you, my friend, you are the olive tree. You are the fig tree. You are the vine that says, I've got too much going on for God. And there is a thorn bush. There is a bramble. And he is Satan. And he has all the time in the world, especially for your family. Do we realize that? Sometimes we say, Jeff, I'm so busy. I can't come to Sunday school. I can't even find time to really read God's word on my own. Guess who will find time to speak into your life? what you hear on the radio, what you hear from other people. And I guarantee you, those of you who have children, Satan has plenty of time. He does. He's got plenty of time. He'll show up as a bramble bush and tell the kids, you know what? It's no problem. I can show you what's fun. I can teach you what's good. So I encourage you, no matter how God has blessed you, don't be the ones that stood back and allowed a vacuum of leadership to come. 
whether it be in your family or whether it be in the United States of America. I think that we could have so many great things happen if Christians just got with God and said, God, I need to reevaluate my priorities. Y'all okay? Things are going well. My job, my family, but my goodness, I've been so busy. I've not had time to do the most important thing. And if I don't realize it, I'm going to be 10 years down the road and having wasted my life living what some people mythically call the American dream. To accumulate, only to have it disappear later on. Reevaluate your life and ask, are you giving all that you can to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? You see, the world tells you that it's only important if you can gain benefit from it. Jesus is the opposite of Abimelech. This is so good. This is where we're getting to Jesus. Y'all ready? Alright, here's the good application. Abimelech built his throne on shedding the blood of innocent people. Jesus came to build a kingdom based upon Him willingly giving Himself for all people and all who would believe. Amen? And Abimelech, towards the sad end of his life, had his skull crushed by a woman dropping a brick equivalent from a tower. But I praise God that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's a prophecy. The first prophecy of the Messiah. It says, speaking of the serpent, speaking of Satan, that the seed of Adam, the future Messiah, the serpent, the snake, will strike at his heel, but his heel will crush the head of the snake. And here we see Abimelech is a picture of Satan. He came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus came to give life more abundantly. And if you are Jotham, if you courageously stand and say, Thus says the Lord, I'm the survivor, but God's judgment is coming, there will be a day which God will justify you and your words and your life. The the head of the snake is crushed. The bramble, the thorn king, the thorn who was a pain and who brought suffering to people. We know our Lord Jesus Christ was there and He uttered not a word. And they didn't just have one thorn, one thorn bush. They crafted it into a crown of thorns and they crushed it down upon His head. And He absorbed the torture for us. You see how the Gospel is different? Not only should we look to Christ when, when we may be confused by the temporary success, uh, successes of evil people, but we should look to Christ as the definition of true success. To with Christ, He teaches that true success comes through humility and sacrifice and not by accomplishment and recognition. And I know for some of us here this morning, there are probably many here, and you were raised in a home to where there was never any true biblical Jesus-anointed encouragement. You did the best that you could in school and in sports, and it seemed like the parents were always just like, ah, good job. If you did something wrong, you heard about it, didn't you? Some were like, amen, oh, my parents are here, right? Like, You know what I'm saying? They they would tell you when you messed up, but there was never any Jesus-anointed, Holy Spirit-fired-up encouragement to say, I am for you. I believe in you. Your mom, your dad, we love you. And you can very easily buy into what Abimelech bought into that said, if I don't stand up for myself, if I don't make a name for myself, if I don't make a name for my power, my ability, and people recognize me as being beautiful, handsome, good at sports, having a lot of money, a cool person, then no one's ever going to notice me. 
Listen, Jesus flexed his ultimate muscles of power by becoming a nobody. A nobody to the point that nobody even stood up and said, not Jesus, not on the cross. He is the King of Kings. Nobody. He was an accursed Jew who suffered for us. You see, what we have to see is for Jesus' accomplishments and Jesus' merits to become what we want people to notice. Not us. Not us. Have you ever been with people before and all they want you to notice is them? It goes like this. Conversations always come back around to them, right? You're talking about this subject over here. Oh, that reminds me of me. And say, okay, well, this conversation with the group swings over here and they try to find themselves in that story. And it's all about them. Do you enjoy being around people who would be categorized as bee monsters? Absolutely not. But here's the amazing truth of the gospel is that when we follow, like it says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. When we make much of Jesus, not only does He give us confidence, does He give us joy, but guess what? Some of you want friends. Some, I mean, most people want friends. If you truly humble yourself and serve other people, they will love you. They will. But we don't do it to get friends, but that's a byproduct of being like Jesus. And finally... We look to Christ for strength and not other people. Abimelech built his kingdom upon the strength of men who could be bought with money. But we build our lives based upon the strength that God gives us to do what we're unable to do by ourselves and what we're unable to do by even a group. If you guys saw several weeks ago, his name is Nick Walenda crossing the Grand Canyon. Anybody see that? took him 22 minutes to walk across the Grand Canyon. And when I watched that, I was a little bit nervous for him. I'm saying, like you put the chip bag down, you put the Dr. Pepper on the mantle, and you lean forward on your seat, and you say, this is real. And you remember they had the audio piped in? You remember what he was talking about? He was talking about his, his account within the stock market. I was like, dude, I didn't know you owned stock at Krispy Kreme. That's crazy, right? Y'all remember that? Some of you are like, yeah, you just lied because that's not what he said at all. The whole time, brother, from point A to point B, it was an old-fashioned come-to-Jesus meeting. I mean, it was just like, thank you, Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The whole, I mean, the whole way he's thinking, Lord, thank you for calming that cable. I'm like, no joke. I'm just glad he didn't get charismatic, you know. Raise the hands. That's all she wrote. Say, well, he went, he went down praising Jesus. But is he, he walked step by step by step by step across the Grand Canyon. Crazy. The whole way. He acknowledged his dependence upon Jesus Christ. Bimelech, his dependence was upon his money and his men. But for those of us who love Jesus Christ, our dependence step by step is not in things and people to make us feel secure, but it is upon Jesus who frees us from insecurity 
who enables us to reach out to people and ultimately preserves us through a wicked and treacherous culture.